Hey, pumpkin. Who am I? Say, Mama. Mama. <sighs> Alexa, play the Tang Tangs. Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews. Cancel anytime. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, fans of Closet Security. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. Listening to the greatest talk show that ever has, is, or ever will be tonight. It's August 16th, 2014, and I'll be airing the exclusive interview between myself and the illustrious Nick Red Fern. That's right, the world famous author of the latest 
book called Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Now, we're not going to have a whole lot of time, guys. As you know, our show is an hour long. I tried to get it scheduled for 90 minutes, but unfortunately, I don't know what happened. The server only gave me an hour. So I'm going to try to make it go longer than that. We may only be live for an hour and then archived beyond that. I think the interview was fantastic. As you know, I record the interview and then I air it live this episode. Now, as always, I know many of you are interested in chatting about this kind of subject, those of you that do listen live. So if you do would like if you would like to call in, I will ask you to call in after the interview and you can call area code three four seven two three seven five one eight seven. The area code once again is three four seven. The number is seven five one eight seven. You can also listen live at ww blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift or you can follow us on twitter.com my handle is emmy shift show you can also find on facebook where our uh the graveyard shift talk show where we can be discussing what of course as always you can subscribe for free on itunes and you can also look this spreaker.com that's spreaker.com so, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm just going to give you a bit of a um, of kind of like a primer before we get started. For those of you who don't know who Nick is, and I do kind of give a little bit of a bio before I interview him, he's really a world-famous cryptozoologist and UFOologist. And his main area of research really centers, you know, determining um, what the UFOs are and were. And he started in Britain in the UK, uh, and, and, you know, he worked all over the place. He spent hours at the public record office in London. He uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating way back from the Second World War. I mean, he has got so many best-selling books. Uh, the FBI Files, the FBI's UFO Top Secrets Exposed, that's one book. Cosmic Crashes, the incredible story of the UFOs that fell to Earth. Um, and in fact, we this is actually the second time we've had him on our show. He was actually our very first guest when we were at the radio station, which I will not name because you know I hate that radio station, but he at that point he had published the book Three Men Seeking Monsters, which, by the way, if you want to read something that's hilarious and also really awesome, read that book. And obviously you want to read the one that we're going to be interviewing him tonight on. So that's who Nick is. You also more than likely have heard him on Ancient and seen him also on Ancient Aliens, the TV series. He was one of the experts that were interviewed on that show. He does lectures all over the world. I mean, the man is a busy man. So the fact that he had time to even get on a little show here, that says something. And we consider him a very dear friend of the show. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to waste any more of your time because we don't have a lot of time to waste. Here is my interview with Mr. Nick Redfern. Punch in. How you doing, Shifties? This is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. I am on the air with the illustrious, the awesome, the legendary Senor Nick Redfern. He's been interested in UFOs since 1978. His main area of research centers around determining what has been learned about the UFO subject at an official level in Britain. He spent hundreds of hours at the public record office in London and has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. Nick is the author of several best-selling books on UFOs, including The FBI Files, The FBI's UFO Top Secrets Exposed, 
Cosmic Crashes, The Incredible Story of the UFOs That Fell to Earth. Nick also lectures on the UFO subject, both in UK and abroad. However, his most recent book that we're going to discuss today is Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Nick, how you been, buddy? Hey, Emmett. Doing good, thanks. How's it going? It's going good, my friend. It's my God. It's been a long time. A lot of people don't realize yeah. you were with been, us. Um, a couple of years, I should think, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been yeah, yeah. a few years. Yeah, you were with us back when... Um, uh, men, three, is it three men? Yeah, three men seeking monsters. How about that? Oh well, yeah, that that was going back a long time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a blast from the past. So, yeah. so uh, I'm, I'll tell you, my friend, I got to. I'm pretty excited about this new book. And you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about about it and how you got involved with it? Yeah, well, the book called uh, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, and it's basically about mysterious, suspicious deaths in the UFO field. Like researchers and investigators who got too close to the truth, but also things like missing pilots and um, dead pilots who are reportedly chasing UFOs. So, in other words, it's kind of like the dark side of the UFO subject, where in some cases people have died at the hand or been killed at the hands of the UFO phenomenon itself. Others may have been literally sort of taken out by assassins for for getting too close and. Um, the main reason I wrote the book um, was largely because, well, if you're going to write a book, you know, I always take the view that you've got to give the reader something new. You don't just want to go over old ground um, if they're going to spend the money on buying a book. And so I always think carefully what I'm going to write about. And so I sort of cast it around for a few ideas and was surprised to learn that there'd never been really like a full-length book that documented all the mysterious deaths from 47 to the present day. You know, one or two people may have written articles here and there, huh. but it was kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, if you've just got a bunch of pieces on the floor, it doesn't make any sense, or people don't appreciate the scale of it. So when you put the pieces together, you see how many cases there have been and, and how many unusual deaths there have been over the last sort of 70 years since the whole subject kicked off in 47. Right, yeah, there has been quite a bit of uh, of if you really and, and and it's that's pretty amazing that you've decided on that subject matter. It's true. I don't think I have ever seen a book uh like center on that because I, I and and I'm glad that you finally did it because I think it needs to be done. There's there have been a lot of people that have lost their lives, have been injured critically, permanently and threatened uh because of this subject and i think it's finally time that somebody uh reports about it um now is there was there a particular uh case that really stood out for you that you just said okay that's it i'm doing this book i mean mm. well there's actually a few i mean one that really stands out is a subject you don't hear very much about and uh, most of your listeners i'm sure and you as well will have heard of the phenomenon of cattle mutilations um, where cattle are found dead all across the United States with organs removed from the body, blood removed. And now, look, looks... Nick, Nick, now look, man, look, uh, I know you like to eat weird stuff, but look, this isn't about food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Please <laughs> no, I do like meat. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you have all these attacks across the U.S. of cattle being, you know, sort of drained, absorbed, with blood removed, organs removed, some cases, it looks like laser-type technology has been used on the animals and um, clearly not being done by wild animals like coyotes or whatever. 
And these reports have gone on across the U.S. since the 60s, and particularly on rural farmland, and people reported seeing strange lights in the sky and unmarked helicopters in the day after, days afterwards as if they're sort of monitoring the scene. Oh. Um, but there's, a, there's like an offshoot of this, which is the whole human mutilation phenomenon. Now, although you don't hear about this as much, there yeah. actually have been a couple of dozen cases, or there may have been more, this is just the ones we know about, where people have been found killed like, sort of in the woods or in the wilderness, and it doesn't look like they were attacked by wild animals, um, you know, like mountain lions or grizzly bears. It looks, again, as if it's the sort of precise cuts, medical cuts almost, organs removed, mm -hmm. lips even removed, tongues removed, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And... This brings me sort of back to your question. Certainly one of the darkest stories I talk about in the book um, came from a former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, a man named Leonard Stringfield. Mm -hmm. And Stringfield, when he was with the military, actually had his own very close encounter with like a squadron of UFOs in 1946. Mm -hmm. Then when he retired from the military, he began digging into the subject more because of, he, because of his position as an intelligence officer. He retained a lot of close links with people in the military. One of these was a friend and colleague, a high-ranking officer, who told Stringfield how, in 1972, he'd been stationed out in um, Cambodia. This was at the height of the um, Vietnam War. And he was part of a unit that was sent out um, to try and track down, like, a a North Vietnamese unit that they needed to take out. And um, although they didn't find the unit, they got to the area where the North Vietnamese people were supposed to be working from, but came into this clearing only to see like a huge, about 50-foot diameter globe-shaped object sitting on tripod legs. But that wasn't the worst thing they saw. Well, what they actually encountered was like a group of very strange-looking creatures, which we could really only call aliens, sort of five to six feet tall, skinny with large heads, and they're reportedly loading human bodies, dead bodies and body parts, into these huge bins and sealing them and loading them aboard the craft, almost like a, like a meat-packing factory equivalent, something like that. Yeah. And reportedly there was a firefight between the two, and the military was forced to retreat, and the aliens supposedly loaded all these bins aboard the craft and shot up into the sky. Now, it's a very controversial story, obviously, but Leonard Stringfield, you know, that's his real name, he, he's a verifiable U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, openly and publicly on the record to say that he got the story from an equally respected intelligence, uh, excuse me, military officer, um, and it really sort of demonstrates, you know, one of the reasons why there may be so much secrecy surrounding the subject, because, you know, you have this really dark side to the phenomenon that probably nobody in government would ever want to reveal. Well, no, of course not, especially if there was uh, deaths uh, involved and, you know, but I mean, can you imagine just, I mean, the, the, uh, the amount of, huh, uh, I mean, of uh, uh, keeping people quiet, how much they would have to pay these people off, the families involved with these people that, and you know, a lot of the, what you, what you're saying sounds almost identical to, uh, the, the, the mystery sound surrounding Plum Island, yeah. uh, over there in, uh, near, uh, I believe it's near New York, I believe, and, uh, or Montauk, excuse me. And, um, uh, like, well, this is a much older story, but, uh, about the, the USSL dredge with the, the Philadelphia experiment, yeah. although that's more of like, um, 
you know, mass teleportation and, you know, some, although some people think it had something to do with UFOs, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of debate about that, of course. Um, but so, I mean, that's unbelievable. That, and, you know, the thing about the, the, the firefight also sounds, again, like the, the, the Battle of L.A., which yeah. a lot of people, you know, now, uh, did you, did you, there was a story that I heard on this, I, I think it was a documentary you were on, and uh, I want to say it was the History Channel, which by the way, ladies and gentlemen, those of you that do not know, which shame on you for not knowing, Nick has been featured on Ancient Aliens. I saw you, I couldn't believe, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> congratulations on that. that was, that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I didn't quite see what I was Ancient Aliens, it's not a bad show really. Pretty yeah, good. Did, did you ever meet that guy, the Aliens guy? Have you ever met him in person? Which one? The one that goes, you know, the guy, the one with the crazy hair. Oh, Giorgio. Yeah, I've met him a couple of times. He's a nice guy. So, you know, very down to earth and got no ego about him. And I said, yeah, he's a cool guy. Oh, okay. I've just, I've always wanted to meet him. And like, you know, everyone always wants him to do that alien thing. You know, because that's what he's famous for. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, so he, you know, you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Nick was on there. And, and I think it was that episode that they were just, they were talking about, they were interviewing this Japanese pilot. And it was a rather famous case where it was, I think it was one of the first times that it was actually documented on an, an air traffic controller's log where the Japanese pilot saw these unidentified flying objects off to his, um, to his side of, off the plane. And they were following the, the commercial air. And this was a commercial airplane. And, and they were following so closely that, in fact, not only did the radio become garbled, which obviously, I mean, that's that's something very common that happens, but also his flight path got screwed up, and he he actually had to drop in 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 altitude to an almost very dangerous level. So uh, I don't know if you remember that particular. Uh, I mean, I wish I could I could remember the name of the pilot, but it just um, um I, don't, I, I didn't. I don't remember that one, unfortunately. No. Yeah, I, I I'll I'll look it up while we're discussing, but it, it wasn't something that I had prepared. But it just what you were saying reminded me of that. Now let let's go back to these events that keep happening about all these these occurrences of uh, of fatal and all and you know uh, near fatal. Why do you think these if this is really happening that these aliens are coming and they're mutilating humans and whatnot? What do you think could be the reason behind it? I mean, why why would they need massive quantities of us or however many quantities that they're that they're getting well i think a lot of it could be sort of based around just medical experimentation or scientific experimentation in the same way that we experiment on you know small animals like rats or whatever it may just be that we're considered like a lower life form and you know it's their right to use us as they please um you know because we kind of view ourselves as like the top dog, so to speak, you know, that we couldn't imagine somebody doing that to us, you know, the human race. But I think actually that could be what it is. You know, somebody's coming here from somewhere else and they're experimenting on the natives, so to speak, to, you know, to see what makes them tick and what their biology is like. And if they view us as a really low life form, they may not have any sort of consideration of the value of human life. You know, they may just the equivalent of a person stepping on an ant or something like that you know right well or, or as uh to, to do a little geek reference here from the avengers movie like when loki tells nick fury you know uh 
you know, when the, the, the boot steps on the ant kind of thing, although it's not, that's not the exact quote, I'm going to get yelled at for that, but, <laughs> but that's just kind of like that kind of thing where, uh, where the ants, they're the boot. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. Now, um, have you, did you actually get to interview anyone that, you know, maybe was a, a survivor of one of these, uh, incidents? And, and if so, uh, what is it that they, like, what were some of the, I mean, uh, more interesting, uh, accounts that they that they discussed with you if you can say that well i mean i mean the ones they talk about in the book i mean all those cases ended up fatally so you know the people aren't necessarily around to interview anyway but you know right. we have their accounts on file and we can investigate the circumstances of their deaths for me one of the most fascinating ones goes way back to 1953 and involves two ufo researchers one named carl hunrath and the other one was named Wilbur Wilkinson. They were both originally from uh, Racine, Wisconsin. And in early 52, um, Hunrath, Carl Hunrath, who was like a, an inventor, he moved to Los Angeles. And shortly after, Wilkinson moved with his wife and kids um, to the, the same area so they could all carry on their UFO research. Well, in the weeks and months after their arrival in Los Angeles, they started hooking up with a lot of the early so-called contactees, as they were known in the 50s, people who claimed contact with human-like aliens. This involved uh, the, the people such as George Adamski and also a man named George Hunt Williamson. Well, it turns mm -hmm. out that Carl Hunrath and Wilbur Wilkinson spent a lot of time with um, George Hunt Williamson, and he supposedly taught them ways to psychically contact the aliens. And the story is that they actually managed to sort of like call the aliens down and had some sort of like a psychic exchange with them. Now, from there, they were later supposedly told that they would have the opportunity to actually meet with the aliens in the mountains of California and, and possibly even be taken on board a UFO, which, you know, I mean, oh. sounds a bizarre story. But what happened, this was all scheduled for November 1953. And sure enough, what happened was that Hunrath and Wilkinson rented an aircraft because um, Hunrath himself was an amateur pilot. Well, actually, I say he's a professional pilot. He was a, in the Second World War. And um, they took to the skies from a small airport just outside of Los Angeles to liaise and meet up with these reported aliens in the mountains. That was the last of anybody ever saw of them. They took off from the, air, uh, the airfield, and they were never, ever seen again. The oh. aircraft was never found, no wreckage, sort of no telltale, you know, um, smokestacks and flames coming from the mountains or the woods or whatever. And okay. despite the fact that the police launched a, an extensive search, the local emergency services went out and, you know, emergency planes were sent to circle the area. Nothing was found. And, and 71 years later, excuse me, 61 years later, still nothing has been found. And um, a lot of researchers at the time thought that, you know, this story about meeting up with aliens really did occur, but perhaps they'd even been hostile aliens and had not only kidnapped Hunrath and Wilkinson, but had kidnapped the airplane, you know, captured the aircraft as well, I should say. And, um, and it's sort of fascinating and a weird story because when they vanished, they vanished from the radar literally like 10 minutes after they'd taken to the skies. In other words, mm -hmm. it wasn't like they'd been missing for a month and nobody realized, and then they had to look for them. It was like the investigation began immediately. 
and yet for miles, you know, the, the ground was scoured, and was, as I said, there was no smoke coming up from anywhere, nothing. And um, and the mystery still remains. It was actually big news in the Los Angeles newspapers of the day. Um, you know, UFO researchers vanish after alleged allegedly planning to meet with aliens. So it's a very strange story that still goes on now. Right, and I mean, you, you actually—I was going to ask something, but you got—you actually answered the question because I was going to—I was wondering, like, well, I mean, well, how do they know that it was them that, like, they were actually abducted? But if they were already investigating it, it was kind of—I mean, you know—it doesn't take very much uh, detective work to kind of put put one and one together. I mean, mm-hmm. that's exactly the the topic that they were researching, and to—and you know, it's amazing to me that there was nothing left. Normally, when you have an abduction or, or, or something like that, there, there's something, either a scorch mark like you indicated or, yeah. or some kind of, but the fact that there was no evidence whatsoever, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was just for all intents and purposes. It was, you know, they just vanished totally. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. We were talking earlier about um, the Philadelphia experiment, and I know, uh, do, you, do you think the Morris Jessup, who was involved, and, and Dad, do you think that that he was murdered in 1959 as a result of his investigation? I actually do. I've got an entire chapter in the book on Jessup. And um, Morris Jessup was a very interesting guy. Um, he sort of really got into the UFO subject in terms of interest in the late 40s and wrote a number of good books um, in the 1950s, certainly the most famous and influential one probably being the case for the UFO. And that's a very good book, and it sort of deals with his research into UFOs, um, but also his investigations based on his personal travels to, like, Central America and South America, investigating, like, the the old South American pyramids and things like this, which he felt were built by extraterrestrials, or at least with alien technology. Um, And in the years that progressed, he got more involved in ufology, and then he crossed paths with this guy named Carlos Allende, who claimed to be one of the sailors either involved in the, pre- the Philadelphia experiments in 1943 or at least witnessed it. That's kind of a bit of an unclear area. But for people who aren't aware, the Philadelphia experiment was this alleged experiment in the Philadelphia Navy Yard in 43 to try and right. make a warship invisible, either to radar or magnets, um, to magnetic mines, but it may have gone wrong and literally rendered the ship optically invisible and had sort of catastrophic psychological and physical effects on the crew. And it was all hidden under this barrier of secrecy. Well, it turns out that um, Jessup's book, The Case of the UFO, a copy of it was mailed anonymously to the Navy um, filled with all these annotations and words about um, the Philadelphia experiment and other sort of secret issues and the pyramids. And it was actually the copy then reached like a, a weapons research division in the Navy. And the guys within this project actually contacted Jessup and invited him to fly him out to D.C. Oh. to speak about his book. And he was kind of both sort of excited but a little bit apprehensive, you know, the government wants to fly me out to talk about my book. You know, that was kind of almost unheard of. Um, But what happened was that it wasn't like a good cop, bad cop situation. They legitimately just wanted to know. Um, And so he told the story of his research, and they said, well, we've received um, a copy of your book. It's got all these strange writings in it, whatever. Can you identify the writing? 
So they passed the book over to him, and then Jessup realized it was this Carlos Allende who had been corresponding with him. He recognized the writing. Exactly, yeah. And it sounds like, with hindsight, they may well have been less interested in Jessup and more interested in trying to find out who was blowing the whistle on the Philadelphia experiment. That right, could have been right. the crux of it. But what happened was that in the aftermath of this visit, um, a lot of weird stuff began, into, began to happen to Jessup in his life. For example, uh, he began to get these weird hang-up phone calls. Um, his mail was intercepted and torn open and resealed as if to try and, you know, to let him know he was being watched. Mm-hmm. Um, he reported occasionally seeing strange characters outside the house and cars driving slowly outside. He actually became quite paranoid. And then he had this weird um, car accident, which he couldn't understand oh. how it had happened. And it was almost like something had taken control of his mind and forced him off the road. And he was actually badly injured. But everything sort of really sort of came to a head in a, a finale, so to speak, in 1959, um, when he actually he died. Well, I say died. You know, um, he may well have right. been murdered. This occurred yep. in April 1959 at a place called the Matheson Hammock Park in, right, Miami, right. in Miami, Florida. And um, Jessup's body was found in his car, you know, just sitting bolt upright. There was a hose pipe going from the exhaust through the front window. You know, sort of classic case of suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. But there were a lot of weird issues surrounding the suicide. For example, just the night before, he did a friend, a close friend named Dr. Manson Valentine. And Jessup told Valentine, he said, I've made a major breakthrough in the subject. We need to meet up tomorrow for lunch or dinner. And he, Matt Valentine said he was like really excited. Didn't sound like a man who within 24 hours was going to kill himself. In fact, the exact opposite. You know, he wanted to share what this new discovery was. On top of that, despite the fact that it looked like a suicide, you know, in, in a suicide case, the victim is generally autopsied just to make sure that, you know, it wasn't staged to look like a suicide. Right. But in Jessup's case, the the burial was rushed through. There was no autopsy. It was just done very, very quickly, and, you know, and then he was he was buried. So, you know, when you put all these different aspects together, the threat, the weird car accident, the male interference, the sense of somebody watching him, and then, you know, the uh, the whole angle of how the night before he was he was dead, you know, he clearly wasn't acting like a man on his in his last moments, and the race through with the autopsy. When you put all that together, you know, one issue would be enough. But when you put all those together, I think we've got to look seriously at the idea that Jessup actually was murdered. You know. Right. Right. And you know, and there have been so many different interpretations of the story and, yeah. and different i mean i had a gentleman uh interviewed a gentleman called uh, uh dr kevin d randall oh yeah a few shows ago yeah and and um, yeah he's a great guy and he's very very uh i mean just like you i mean very well researched very educated and um and he was telling me about another version of the story and and but really it all boils down to the fact that there, there was just too many um too many uh things going on with this man that, that i mean i i am with you on this i think he was murdered as well but, um, you know, one of those things that who knows if we'll ever know the real truth. And, you know, this isn't the only case. I mean, there's so many. I mean, heck, you wrote a book about it, about these people dying with uh, in connection with UFOs and, and especially with the government being involved. And I think, you know, uh, going way, way back to the I don't know if you want to call it the beginning, but at least the, the, the mainstream public beginning, uh, maybe one of it of the Roswell UFO crash of 
July 1947. Now, I also discussed this with Dr. Randall, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about the suspicious death that surrounded that crash and what you thought about that. Yeah, there actually are a couple of cases, um, you know, that, that do sound quite suspicious. Um, for example, certainly the most famous one, um, back in 1989, a man named Glenn Dennis, who was a mortuary assistant in Roswell at the time, surfaced and told this story about how in the summer of 47, when the Roswell crash occurred and the bodies and the wreckage were reportedly taken to the military base in the town of Roswell itself, um, he got a weird phone call from somebody at the base asking if he got any caskets, which were sort of the size enough for a child, and could they be sort of like hermetically sealed, preserve uh. the bodies. And of course, if the military just phoned up and said, you know, have you got three or four coffins, he might have thought, well, it's just a, you know, a tragic plane crash or something like that. But when they're asking if they can be sealed, hermetically sealed, and they, were, they needed to be child-sized, then he realized something strange was going on. So Dennis, yeah. Glenn Dennis went out to the base. Because all the, you know, the people, Roswell's a little town, everybody knew each other. Um, the guys, at, like the sentries at the, at the base, assumed he'd been called out there because they all knew him as the mortuary assistant. So it was like, hey, Glenn, you know, come on through. Um, not realizing, you know, he'd just taken it upon himself to go to the base. But when he got uh -huh. in there, he met with a nurse friend of his who told him that, you know, he ought to get out immediately. His life could be in danger. And she quickly told him the story of seeing these strange bodies, which she said had been found out in the desert. Nobody knew what they were or where they were from. It was just they, the story was a rancher had stumbled upon this huge field of wreckage as if something had exploded and there were these bodies there as well. Now, at the, when this was 47, uh, Glenn Dennis stayed silent for 42 years, didn't go public until 1989. And although he wanted to reveal the story and he also wanted to say who he got the story from, which he said was a nurse, he was worried about exposing her if, for example, you know, um, he revealed the real name and so on. So he gave her a pseudonym of Naomi Self and said she was a nurse. But the more that researchers dug into it, most of the evidence pointed towards a woman named Miriam Bush, who was actually an executive secretary in the hospital rather than a nurse. And um, what happened was that when Glenn Dennis went public, this was like September 89, it turns out that Miriam Bush had actually told her family way back in 47 about what she'd seen. So almost about seeing these bodies. So it almost is the case with a, you know, certainty that Miriam Bush was Naomi Self, the, the name that um, Glenn Dennis huh. used. And right. it turns out that when Glenn Dennis went public in um, September or thereabouts, 1989, Miriam Bush got very paranoid that somebody was watching her, that she was, you know, being followed. And the fact that Glenn Dennis had told the story and revealed who he got it from, she may have well had a lot of um, reasons to think she was being followed. You know, somebody yeah, may have been so, trying yeah. to track her down, you know, after 60, 50 years and concerned about what she was going to say. Well, it turns out that in just before the end of 1989 and just a couple of months before Glenn Dennis essentially told her story, Miriam Bush checked into a hotel room, actually using her sister's name um, and her sister's identity. In other words, it was like she was trying to hide her tracks and and, and vanish. But what mm -hmm. actually happened was that the day after she checked into the motel, she was found dead in the room with a plastic bag over her head and bruises on her arms. 
And the police, huh. you know, obviously there was a police investigation. They right. suggested it was suicide, but the family, oh, the family did not, you know, the, the family questioned that and one thought there were suspicious aspects to it. Of course, of and, course. Um, so that is like a very sinister story where it sounds like that she was silenced because she may well have been one of the last original people from 47 still living who could have really blown the whistle on what happened and somebody may have taken steps to ensure that, you know, she never was able to do that. And, you know, it's funny, uh, a lot of uh, people in the UFO community and, and, the, and, and you know, in, in our field, they, they, they often attribute Roswell and all these things to how, to why our technology has advanced. Like maybe we reverse engineered yeah. some things that we found out there. I mean, because, you know, if, if you kind of time it, like where the, when the microchip was invented, mm when IBM was really getting into its heyday. And if you kind of connect it with, it's a little bit of a coincidence too much, if you have, if you know what I mean. So well, Yeah, I mean, that whole period was a weird period, 1947. You know, a lot of strange things going down. It was the year in which you had Roswell. You had the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which brought in the era of, of flying saucers. Right, the right. Which the National Security Act was passed. It was the year the CIA was created. Uh-huh. And yeah, you know, the, at the top of it, Roswell. So you know, it's very significant uh, year when the, the government and the military were all being reshaped and reformatted into new organisations. And um, so, if anything was going to sort of kick off that time in terms of you know new programs and projects looking into UFOs, that probably would have been when it was. You know, um, you had a lot of new organisations wanting to get in on the UFO action if you like and try and figure out right. what was going on exactly i mean and that's you know the the whole thing about project blue book and all that stuff and, and you know and and really it just came to almost a culmination of just just oh my god i mean when the well like the assassination of president john f kennedy in november of 1963 now this one it, i mean i'm a pretty open-minded kind of guy you know that but I got to tell you, I've been hearing this stuff about there being a UFO connection mm-hmm. to President uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. I am trying, I mean, it's a stretch for me. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of connect the dots here? What, what, are these, what, what is yeah. the story behind? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, within ufology, um, there are a lot of people who do find the idea that, you know, the two world's biggest conspiracy theories, UFOs and the Kennedy assassination, the idea that it could actually be one big conspiracy, you know, so for some people that's just too much. But the fact is, when we go looking into the UFO subject, we do, and I mean the Kennedy assassination, excuse me, we do find links with the UFO subject. There's absolutely no doubt about that. For example, I'll give you a few examples. Yeah, um, please. Back actually just three days before the Roswell event occurred, there was a very similar event at a place called Maury Island in Washington State. I've heard about this, yeah. Well, what happened was that, like, a fleet of UFOs were seen flying in the sky, and uh, one of them reportedly exploded and showered all this wreckage into the harbor. Now, one of the guys who collected all of this material, much of which was handed over to the military for study, was a man named Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman was a very shadowy, weird guy, linked and plugged into the world of espionage and spying and all sorts of things. And funnily enough... Chrisman, who handled this wreckage, actually popped up in the Kennedy assassination in 63 to the extent huh. that 
um, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who was heavily involved in the investigation of the JFK assassination, right, right, he right. came to believe that Chrisman, who found this wreckage or recovered the wreckage, was actually one of the gunmen on the grassy knoll. Um, mm -hmm. Now, on top of that, uh, Chrisman was friends with a man named Guy Bannister. And Guy Bannister, in 47, was a special agent to the FBI. Yeah. At the time of the assassination, he had his own um, private eye company, Guy Bannister Associates, in, mm -hmm. uh, in New Orleans. But Bannister, in the summer of 47, undertook many UFO investigations for his boss, J. Edgar Hoover, in the FBI. And um, Bannister's FBI files on his UFO investigations have now been declassified. So that's two people out of literally dozens who have a, like a an ongoing link between the world of espionage, UFOs, and the Kennedy assassination. Now, another one is that the, the bigger part of the story is the reason why Kennedy was supposedly killed in relation to UFOs. The story is that he wanted to reveal to the general public all around the world what he knew about UFOs. And whoever was responsible for hiding it, you know, this sort of super secret group, that in many respects seems to be more powerful than the government itself. You know, it's like its own independent government. They perceived that, you know, there's just no way we're going to let him do that. You know, we've kept the secret long enough. There's no way he's going to tell the world. So the countdown was on to his death. But the story is that Kennedy, even though he was president, you know, couldn't get the full picture, so he went looking for it himself. Now, it turns out that on the day before he was killed, Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza, Dallas, on November the 22nd, 1963. Right. The day before, November the 21st, he was actually already in Texas, and um, he opened a new scientific wing at a place called Brooks Air Force Base in Texas. And mm -hmm. it was dedicated to research into outer space medicine, you know, how the human body would be affected or would react to low gravity or no gravity, you know, in, in space or on other... Nobody really knew what the effects would be then, so that was the whole point of this wing that was being set up to, to research that. And it turns out that Kennedy had a behind-closed-doors meeting at Brooks Air Force Base one day before he was shot with a man named Major General Theodore Bedwell. And Theodore yeah. Bedwell held a major medical position at what at the time was called Wright Field uh, and later became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh. It turns out he held a major military and medical position at the base in the summer of 47, the very base which in the summer of 47 the Roswell bodies were reportedly taken to. And because of uh, Major General uh, Bedwell's position, he would have been one of the ideal people to see the bodies. And so here we have Kennedy, one day before he was shot, meeting that very man in a behind-closed-doors meeting. Uh, and then 24 hours later, he's dead. So, you know, we do have a lot of weird stuff like that going on. No, okay. I mean, well, I can see, I guess, how when you uh, when you have those connections and, and you have those people that have been involved in other things, I suppose I can see how somebody would come to some kind of a conclusion. I mean, still, it's it's no... I don't know if there ever will be a clear cut, uh, for sure, definite, oh, yeah, this is how it happened and this is why it happened. Maybe when everybody that had something to do with it and maybe even when their family members are gone from this earth yeah. and maybe not even then. But um, I, 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 I mean, that does at least clear up the reason, you know, why there would be a connection. So now uh, kind of fast forwarding a tiny bit, you know, you have all of these things happening here. Well, you know, how about in good old England? You know, you've got like a British man named Edward Bryant. And I think you mentioned uh, him uh, earlier 
uh, he apparently died in 1967, uh, two years before what we were just talking about, after encountering a UFO in his career. Now, what, what, what's so, what is the significance of, of him and his death involved in this? Well, yeah, Edward Bryant was a guy who claimed um, a close encounter with a UFO in 1965. He lived in a little, like centuries-old little English village in the southwest of, the, of England, and in 1965, he said one particular morning in the fields behind his house, he lived in like a very isolated little village on a place called Dartmoor. Dartmoor is actually where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle set the novel The Hand of the Baskervilles. So it's like I was... a mysterious, foggy moor right. filled with old stone circles and castles and things like that. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to say that. <laughs> and it actually still looks like that today. It's like taking a trip back, you know, three centuries or something. And... Wow. Um, but what happened was that Bryant said in the field he could see this, like a gleaming flying saucer. Um, and he was sort of amazed and tentatively walked over to it and said these very human-looking aliens came from it. But there's a few subtle differences. The faces sort of looked enigmatic and there was sort of the, the heads were sort of elongated, you know, noticeably more than you would see in a human. And there was sort of this message about, you know, love, peace, and harmony, and we all need to live together, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the story got out, and it was investigated by a number of, well, actually two UFO researchers, one named Norman Oliver and a woman named Eileen Buckle. And they, between them, they wrote quite a you know, lot of words and articles and books about it. Um, but what happened was that um, Bryant actually died of a very fast-acting brain tumor. And one of the theories that's being put forward, that there are indications that, that um, Bryant may have been sort of kidnapped, if you like, probably the best correct term, by military personnel. And there are parts of the story he couldn't remember. And the story is that he was sort of, had his mind kind of stimulated by microwave technology used by the British military in an effort to try and uncover the secrets that were still buried in his mind. In other words, the military knew something was going on, and but they wanted to get the information. So it was sort of like partly using mind control and hypnotic technology to try and get the information out of his mind, but also to stimulate certain parts of his mind where the information might be buried. But the story was that they were sort of over-enthusiastic with the use of this technology, and the overuse of the microwave technology actually provoked the development of the brain tumor and killed him. So in other words, he wasn't killed by exposure to the UFO phenomenon. He was inadvertently killed by the military or the scientific people that were using microwave technology on him to try and uncover these deeply buried memories. And reportedly, again, the whole thing was covered up and the people on the project were you know, sort of um, warn never to sort of overstep the mark again in this sort of mm. situation. So, um, you know, sort of any very tragic for him, really. That's a, that's unreal. I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, if we had never heard, uh, if he had never said anything beforehand, we would have never known anything about it, really. I mean, we would never no, that's known. The thing. I think the, the military only really got into it big time because his story was highlighted in books and articles, and they were like, well, this sounds like a, an interesting case. And there must have been some aspect to it that made them want to dig into it further, you know, because we don't see evidence of this going on in every UFO case or landing, obviously. So there must have been something significant about this one. And, but, 
as I said, as soon as they got their claws into him, so to speak, he was like treated like a guinea pig and just technology right. was used on him to try and, you know, find these buried memories. And But the use of the technology was what sort of led to his downfall and the, crea- and the, the, the um, development of the tumor. Gary, man, and that's not the only person that's been killed, really, for his their knowledge of, of the UFOs. I mean, look at, you know, Jim Keith, the UFO author, yeah. murdered in 1999. That wasn't too long ago. Well, I guess it was a while ago, I mean, mm-hmm. around 2014. But, I mean, what what about, I mean, do you think he was murdered for what he knew about UFOs? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jim Keith story is one that sort of divides people into, into different areas. Jim Keith was someone, he wasn't just a UFO writer and conspiracy theorist, but he investigated all sorts of conspiracies, um, you know, political ones as well. At the time of his death in 99, he was investigating the, the death of Princess Diana in Paris, France in, in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been looking into things like black helicopter reports, um, UFOs, and also this weird operation called the Octopus. And the Octopus was supposedly yeah. like you know, when we look at governments and government agencies, we, you know, most people assume the government runs the country. The idea of the octopus is that it's like this hidden, almost invisible, very powerful group, that they're the real rulers of the planet, so to speak, you know, and the people we think are in charge are almost just like puppet figures. Um, and the real... So you, mean like the Illu- you mean like the Illuminati? Yeah, kind, kind, of, kind of like that, but sort of more modern-day equivalent made out of sort of huh. powerful, you know, installations and corporations and, you know, big money uh, brokers, that sort of thing. And that's what the octopus was supposed to be. So uh-huh. he was investigating all this stuff at the time of his death. Now, what he actually did, he fell off a stage at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada and mm. woke up the next morning in intense pain an ambulance took him to hospital and he'd fractured his tibia, his shin bone. So he had to go under the knife, but they said, well, we've got to knock you out completely. Now, it turns out that his nephew came to the hospital and Jim Keith confided in his um, his nephew that he'd seen there was somebody at the hospital who shared a name with someone who he got into a big argument with about black helicopters. And Keith actually said to his nephew, he said, you know, I, I actually I have reason to think that if I go under the knife, I'm not going to wake up. And he didn't. Yeah. He actually died on the operating table just for, oh a, fractured, just for a fractured shin bone. Um, now, the official story was he was killed by a blood clot that moved from his leg to his lungs and, you know, stopped yeah. his heart. That's not impossible. Mm-hmm. But what's, we- what's really weird is that in his previous book, Keith was hot on the trail of a story concerning like um, a a pill or a a form of medicine in some form that could actually be unknowingly given to a person and it would actually create in their lungs and make them look look like they died, Ah. you know, just natural causes, but when it would be murder. And it's just so weird that he died from the very thing that he was researching, you know. Yeah, that is. That's very odd. That is odd. Wow, that's creepy, man. That it's almost like somebody stuff. sent a message out, you know. Um, right, right. Like, like hey, don't... Yeah, sort of take him out in the way that he was researching and just, you know, it'll put a warning to everybody else, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, these they are powerful people behind this stuff, you know. I mean, and really, I think, you, you know, you guys that are doing this kind of uh, really intense research and, you know, you got your own bravery in that and you got to be careful and... Mm. 
Um, I think it, I think it helps to get your face out there for people to yeah. actually see you because it makes it harder to you know actually do something because then hey you know whatever happened to that guy I know who he is I know I've seen him before but yeah, exactly. well you know yeah exactly you know and and you know listen we can we can talk about this all night but really ladies and gentlemen you gotta buy this book it's called Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind and and Nick where can they get the book if they want to purchase I'm assuming they can buy it on Amazon and, yeah you can and, buy it on Amazon you can also buy it on all other good online outlets and you can also buy it off the shelves in Barnes and Noble all my books are available off the shelf in Barnes and Noble stores as well right. And, and, you know, if anyone is interested in anything else that Nick has to offer, he's got his own website, which is Nick Redfern 14, which is, um, is his name, Nick Redfern 14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N dot blogspot dot com. It's actually called Nick Redfern's World of Whatever. And um, uh, you can see, well, for one thing, you can see what he looks like. He's a rather dashing British gentleman, if I do say so myself. And um, I'm not entirely totally sure I'm dashing in any of the pictures. I'm wearing like an exploited T-shirt and a bandana, well, there, <laughs> which well, is how I normally dress. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you can see his uh, his his post there and and what he has got. Um, now, Nick, I I noticed on your website you've got several um, events that you're that you're scheduled. I know there's just just a couple coming up. There's uh, the Paradigm Symposium, and then there's uh, the, the oh boy, uh, MUFON. Is that, are you still scheduled to appear there? Or, yeah, or can... there's actually a few. I'm speaking next month. I'm speaking at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, right. West Virginia. Uh, that's all about, you know, obviously, Mothman from the famous Mothman right, Prophecy right. book. Um, October, I'm speaking at the um, Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis. And then in November, I'm speaking at a MUFON conference in uh, Philadelphia. So uh, anybody wants to come along, say hello, and uh, you know, always happy to chat. And not like you know, I like to go to conferences, hang out, and you know, sort of hit the breeze, so yeah. to speak. Right, right. And I mean, how about if they how about they treat you to to to, to pint somewhere? How about that, huh? Oh yeah, that'll work. Yeah, nice cold. That'll pint work. Or several. There, <laughs> see, there you go, guys. Yeah. There, you, there you go. If you see Nick, you just offer him that, and and that, that's a great way to get to know him. Exactly. Um, so that's fantastic. Well, one of these days we'll have to meet up, my friend, because <laughs> we we keep running into each other. So. Well, I'll tell um, you, I'll let you know when I'm in your area, Emmy, and then uh, yeah, hopefully to meet up finally soon. Absolutely, I know, right? Finally, we could go hunting. We could go hunting together. <laughs> so you. maybe we'll find the chupacabra. <laughs> well, Nick, I really appreciate you, you, you know, uh, taking the time to, for this interview, my friend. It's always awesome to hear from you, and we hope to have you on again sometime in the near future. All right, thanks a lot, Amy. Put your warm speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Annette McDougall for the Pop Show Network. Here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptisms offered on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a...
Gentlemen, welcome back to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. This is your host, Emmy, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview between myself and Nick Redfern. I had a blast interviewing him, him as I'm sure you uh, could tell. And, um, you know, Nick is, Nick is a great guy. He's a, so intelligent. He is extremely well-researched. Um, if you guys happen to be around when he is doing an event, please you know, go for it, go over there and support him and, and, you know, Hey, let him know that you, you listened on uh, the interview here with us. Cause I'm sure he'd be very happy to hear that. Now, for those of you who want to know where exactly he'll be, he was talking about a couple of things. Um, the, he's going to be at the Mothman festival, which is going to be at Point Pleasant, West Virginia on the weekend of September 20th and the 21st, uh, where the subject of his lecture is going to be, you know, Mothman style creatures in the UK like the Owl Man, the creepy, you know, little critter thing that turned up in Kent, England back in the 60s, the, the Flying Man of England's Canuck Chase, and, and a lot more. And, of course, you know, you heard uh, me mentioning he's going to be at the Paradigm Symposium. Um, I don't exactly – I'm sure we discussed when and where that will be. I don't see a um, – uh, an actual link for that, but I'm sure we can, you know, you can look it up and uh, and, and check it out. And I think it's in his uh, website, actually. So if now, if you want to get his um, uh, his book, it's called Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, and you can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it at, um, uh, you know, any real Barnes and Noble, like you just said, or really any book. So. Um, Oh, and the Paradigm Symposium is going to be October 3rd through the 5th, and MUFON is in Pittsburgh, uh, November 8th. So, guys, I wish I had more time to discuss. I had some articles here that I was going to talk to you guys about, but I just really, I just don't have time. So, um, if you want to talk more about this kind of stuff, you can go online. www.blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift. You can join us on Twitter feed at twitter.com slash Emmy Shift Show. And, of course, on our Facebook.com page, Talk Show. Remember, guys, uh, to be careful out there and uh, watch out for UFOs and, <laughs> and whatnot. And um, be stay tuned because we do we are still going to interview Tracy Roberts of Positive Electricity. We just keep getting um, you know obstacles with the time and everything. And we also have William J. Hall uh, coming up his interview with the world's most haunted house. We have a gentleman who uh, invented his own cryptozoology Android app. So I'm going to be interviewing him and. 
I gosh, I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there's there's another person that I haven't gotten confirmed yet, so I don't want to say anything yet. But anyway, that's all we got for right now, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for watch, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Stay tuned. Keep us on your favorites because we are always updating. This is Emmy. You were listening to the Graveyard Shift. I'm punching out. See ya. I'm out of here. from the curb on the parallel park. Oh. But not far enough to deduct points. You've passed. Drive safely. Thanks, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I won't let you down. Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews. Cancel anytime. Play the Tang Tangs. Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews. Cancel anytime. time.